University was about web, uh, web development. And part of that course was focused on web design. And I think from the first time I taught that, I told my students that web design is not about how something looks, it's about how it works. Uh, so I, I think I've always taken this mindset that design is less about uh, appearance and more about function. It's more about the problem that you're trying to solve. And so I always taught my students that design is not an art, it's a science. Uh, we should think of it at least as a science in the technology field. Uh, and I think it's in some ways kind of contradictory to what a lot of people think of as design. I think a lot of people grow up thinking design is more about like graphic design or maybe it's about like interior design. And so they think about all these artistic elements and things like that. And sure, there's definitely a field and an area of design that focuses explicitly on these things. But in technology, at least the way I've taught it, has been focused on thinking about design as function and performance and less as the way uh, something aesthetically looks. Uh, the way it looks is important, but uh, in my opinion, it's far less important than the way it works. And so when I first started studying universal design and trying to understand more about this issue, I was doing my doctorate and it was focused on a lot of social and political issues uh, around universal design. So I always took a much broader perspective than I think a lot of people did when they thought about uh, universal design. They always, at least my colleagues, would usually think about design more as about user interfaces. And again, about the functionality of those user interfaces, and that's fine. There's a real need for understanding how a user interface or how the, <laughs> let me see if I can describe what a user interface is, uh, the way something uh, appears in the interaction with a person and a piece of technology. Wow, that was a really complicated way of putting it the interface that a person uses to uh, use a piece of technology, I guess you could say. So their focus was more on those issues, those interactions, the interaction between the human and the computer, we could just say. Uh, and my focus had always been on broader kind of social issues. And so I started to think about design less about the uh, functions and features of a user interface, for example, and more and more about the decision-making that goes into uh, creating those functions and features. Uh, and it wasn't until I started comparing the way I think about it to the way some of my colleagues think, thought about it that I really started to understand that the way I think about design is kind of different than what a lot of people, uh, how a lot of people approach it. So uh, as I started my career in universal design and I was, I was thinking about these broader social and political issues, the, the kinds of things that I cared about a lot was uh, the sort of value systems that influence somebody's decision. So if I'm creating a website and I'm trying to decide, should I use this color or that color? What are the values that are behind that decision? What are the values that influence that decision? Maybe it's personal preference, right? Maybe it's like, I like blue instead of red, so I'm gonna use blue. Or maybe it's uh, kind of the way culture, kind of uh, how they determine what a color means, right? So in certain cultures, colors mean one thing, and in other cultures, they might mean something different. Or the combinations of cultures, uh, combinations of colors might mean something different culture to culture. And so my, uh, my research really focused in on those value systems. So what sort of things influences somebody's decision uh, 
and color is a simple example, but somebody's decision when they're creating something, a piece of technology, for example. And then I also looked at a lot of uh, issues around what are called norms. And norms are just basically judgments. So whether or not we think something's good or bad. So when we talk about personal preference, uh, to say that you know blue is a good color and red is a bad color, that's a normative judgment. Um, and so uh, a lot of the things I was looking at was what are not just the value systems, what do we, what matters to us, but do we think of those values or do we think of something as good or bad is something uh, kind of inherently, according to our judgment, our opinion, good or bad. And trying to understand a little bit more how that plays into those decisions that people are making whenever they create a new piece of technology. Now, this is super abstract, but it's really important because our values, the things we think are our judgments, our things we think are good or bad, they all influence every decision that we make. And then the third thing that I was really concerned about, still am really concerned about when it comes to my research and especially universal design, is the sort of processes that we put into place in our companies and our organizations and our universities and our government, the sort of practices. So what does it mean whenever we say we're going to update a website? Right? What are the processes that we have to go through? Who establishes those processes? Are they standardized? Who's uh, making decisions along the way? So all of those three things kind of influence the way I see it, the way things are designed. So it influences those decisions. If we can take and understand those three components, norms, values, and processes, then I think we'd have a really strong case for being able to change the kinds of decisions people make so that when we create technology, it's something that everyone can use equally. And that's the whole ambition and aim behind universal design. So I was always looking at design from a, a, a different lens or a different set of lenses than a lot of my colleagues who were working in computer science, a lot of them looked at it because a lot of them were just look, looking at different features and functions of a user interface and maybe comparing them. And I mean, there's a real field of science behind this and it's really, really important field of science. But my research was looking at things in a very different dimension. Um, and I started looking at the way decisions are being made within organizations. I started looking at uh, the way business models structure how people make decisions, looking at how organizational policies and practices structure people's decisions, or in some ways how people can uh, subvert those organizational policies and procedures. So I really had my own take on universal design almost from the beginning, or at least a different take than a lot of my colleagues had. Um, and I found that as I had presented my research around the world and as people had listened and responded to my work, I found that there was a group of people that it really it resonated with. There was a group of people that I connected with that weren't necessarily computer scientists, although a lot of them were computer scientists, but they were policymakers, they were, um, they were business owners, they were industry leaders. Uh, there are people who kind of, we, we believe they have a strong role and a responsibility when it comes to universal design. These people, I think the reason why it connected with them, because the way I thought about universal design was really anchored in issues around human rights. It was really anchored in issues around diversity and inclusion. Um, and so I kind of took almost like a design thinking approach to universal design. So if you know what design thinking is, it's basically a way of bridging design and innovation. So it's, it's really using design theory to approach problem solving, I guess you could say. Uh, that's a whole separate episode for a whole nother time. 
but I want to give you a little bit of background for how I, uh, what I believe really helped me articulate my vision of what universal design is. Um, so I think it was in 2017 or maybe even 2016, uh, I met a colleague who worked at uh, Harvard University, actually at the Harvard Law School. And um, met with, I re-met them, you know, when academia, a lot of times you meet people, you know, once a year for like four or five years straight because you're always going at the same conferences or you just work in the same kind of circles. So I met this person and uh, I said, you know, I would love to come to Harvard and just serve like a fellowship or just, you know, be there and work under you for a little while. And uh, he was crazy enough to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's make this happen. And so then it was on me to find the funding and make sure I can kind of do this. So it was 2018. I basically cobbled together a little bit of funding for uh, the travel, a little bit of funding to support myself. But then a lot of it was my own uh, self-funding. And I, there I was kind of heading off to Harvard University, which has like an amazing reputation and especially the law school has an amazing reputation. So my mind was kind of blown and it was just such a surreal experience just doing something as basic as walking down the hall and using the restroom at the at the university, at the law school, because I'm imagining how many uh, Nobel Prize winners, how many U.S. presidents have come through those hallways. And uh, it was humbling, I guess. And I, f I mean... You can't imagine the imposter syndrome that I felt. Uh, you know, I I felt that I genuinely had not earned this uh, kind of opportunity, and uh, but it doesn't. It didn't mean that I wasn't going to take advantage of it. It was just that it took me. Uh, it still uh, kind of feels like it never kind of happened, or it happened, but it was just an accident that it happened. Um. But while I was there, I really got to meet some amazing people. And I'm not talking about famous people. I'm talking about people who are doing the kind of work that it takes to move human rights forward every day. Uh, and these are the kinds of people that fuel my, my yearning for this field, to fuel my desire to continue to pursue this field because I see them working so hard and diligently and I want to kind of match that energy and that effort. Um, but my first day there, I remember going in the, to the office of my of my mentor and sitting with them. And they said, you know, we don't have a specific office space for you because you're just kind of here. Um, but what we can do is uh, give you a conference room to work from uh, if you want. And it was just a conference room down the hall. Pretty big room, had a big U-shaped wood table with wood chairs all around it and had, you know, kind of three large chalkboards at the front of the room and your typical projector, very nice windows, so it had nice natural light coming in and everything like that. And I remember just sitting down and like taking out my computer, plugging it in and trying to figure out what the heck I'm gonna do while I'm here. I think I was there for almost a month and a half, two months. So what am I gonna do over these two months that's gonna give any meaning to me being here besides it just being something on my CV? Yay, I spent some time at Harvard. So what I did was I just, started kind of mapping out everything that I had learned about this issue of universal design on the blackboard. And I literally used chalk. It was chalk and a chalkboard and a chalk, uh, chalkboard eraser. So it wasn't anything kind of super fancy. And I just wrote down all the kind of key ideas, some of the terms that I had learned, the, the things that I think were essential to 
the work that I was studying, the research that I was doing or that I had been doing for the past, uh, I guess it was close to 10 years. But uh, what I ended up with is kind of a distillation of what amounted to four key ideas or principles behind what I thought about when I thought about universal design and four things that I don't think a lot of people had articulated before I had. Um, so there was, a lot of, there was a lot of debate in the uh, scientific journals about what universal design means and how that can be articulated, how that can be put into practice. But there hadn't been anything that's really approached it in a way that was really spelling it out. Um, it was, everything that had spelled it out before had, is, was kind of old-fashioned and was hard to apply in today's reality. So I wanted to kind of create a new way of thinking about universal design. So I took some of the old stuff that was still good, kind of make sure I didn't throw, throw out the baby with the bathwater, and uh, merged it with some new ways of thinking, some things that I think were important for us to take, a, take us to the f- into the future around universal design, creating a more holistic view of things. And I don't want to give you the impression that this was some kind of stroke of genius. And honestly, I don't really believe in that sort of mi- that mindset that like innovations or good ideas are just generated out of the blue, like bam, yay, I figured it out, eureka. I think that's kind of a false, uh, it's kind of a, it's an illusion, I think. Um, it was just the next logical step in my work. Uh, I think anybody who had gotten to the point that I've gotten to in my career could have made that same step. I don't think there was anything unique about what I was doing. Uh, It was just taking universal design, which was fundamentally anchored in kind of accessibility and usability. When I talk about user interfaces, that's what I'm talking about, those functions. It's about accessing and using those functions. And then adding to it, kind of an element of diversity, an element of inclusion, an element of equality, and an element of participation. And I remember when I spoke to my mentor afterwards, and I said, you know, I think I have something interesting that we could publish, but I'm not sure, and it's a risk. Uh, Because with this sort of work, it can be a risk to publish something that isn't kind of been empirically researched for sometimes hundreds of years, but at least for, uh, you know, half a lifetime. And I, I was, I'm still am, and I was a, a younger researcher. And so I said, you know, I, I need you to understand that if we put our names on this, then, uh, then there's a risk that it might be criticized, or there's a risk that it might be um, just complete nonsense, and nobody take, nobody care about it. Uh, and uh, he was very kind enough to not be too concerned about it. He said, if it's something that you think is right, if you believe that this is the case, then I think we can find a a good anchoring for it and uh, we'll just develop it until it's uh, robust enough to be published. So I went through all the what ifs and eventually we settled on a uh, opportunity to publish in the International Journal of Human Rights. And in the process, because this was my first time writing a, a, an article for a law, a law journal, in the process, I had to learn a completely new way of writing. Uh, I had only been used to writing kind of in social science journals or in computer science journals. So I wasn't used to writing in law journals. And uh, so he kind of taught me. I remember the first draft I sent them. I said, okay, here's, you know, uh, 8,000 words on how I, how I can think about putting this together. And he immediately came back and said, okay, this is good. Now rewrite it. <laughs> and so it was one of those moments where I had to be, a, not a little bit, a really humble because um, I had already had at that time, you know, 
20 odd papers in my name. So I knew how to write academic uh, articles. I knew how to write scientific articles. But since this was a new, uh, new kind of field, I had to learn a new way of writing. Well, in the end, it got published. It's one of my proudest achievements, uh, at least in science, that I've, that I've managed to, to do. Uh, it was a, it's a milestone. Uh, I think of it as a milestone in my career. There is a time before that paper came out, and there's a time that, ha- that after that paper came out, and it really changed the trajectory of my work. Um, and I hope it changes the way people think about this field of universal design. It certainly changed the way I thought about it. It really gave me a point of reference and a new way of uh, approaching the way the choices that we make when we're creating something new or creating a new piece of technology. And in some ways, I hope that it does chart kind of a new course, a new direction for this field of universal design. But as I said, I don't really believe in these moments of inspiration. I, I don't believe at least what we commonly associate with those eureka moments. Uh, I think a lot of people think of them those moments as being like zero to 100, like you had nothing and then suddenly you had this amazing idea and it changed the world. I don't think it's like that. I think for the most part, it's not zero to 100, it's 99.9 to 100. So it's just that last step of something much greater that's kind of occurred over a much longer time frame. And it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of luck. Uh, in, my, um, in my experience, it takes a lot of privilege. Uh, there's a lot of opportunities and open doors that have to be available to you. Breakthroughs are always a little bit risky because you always run the risk of it not being quite the way you expect it to be. Uh, but I think if you're in this uh, kind of area, if you're facing this kind of a challenge, take the risk. Uh, what's the worst possible case scenario? Somebody proves you wrong, right? If that's the worst case scenario, that's a good deal because that's what science is all about, being proven wrong. It's all about building off of what came before us so that we can go further. We can take that next step.